Scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 18, 7-14. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. La lectura de hoy viene del libro de Mateo, capítulo 18, versículos 7 al 14. Hay del mundo por las cosas que hacen pecar a la gente. Inevitable es que sucedan, pero hay del que hace pecar a los demás. Si tu mano o tu pie te hace pecar, córtatelo y arrójalo. Más te vale entrar en la vida manco o cojo que ser arrojado al fuego eterno con tus dos manos y tus dos pies. Y si tu ojo te hace pecar, sácatelo y arrójalo. Más te vale entrar tuerto en la vida que con dos ojos ser arrojado al fuego del infierno. Miren que no menosprecien a uno de estos pequeños, porque les digo que en el cielo los ángeles de ellos contemplan siempre el rostro de mi Padre Celestial. ¿Qué les parece? Si un hombre tiene cien ovejas y se les extravía una de ellas, ¿no dejará las noventa y nueve en las colinas para ir en busca de la extraviada? Y si llega a encontrarla, les aseguro que se pondrá más feliz por esa sola oveja que por las noventa y nueve que no se extraviaron. Así también, el Padre de ustedes que está en el cielo no quiere que se pierda ninguno de estos pequeños. Before we begin here, uh, just a brief announcement of, uh, related to what we're about to talk about, and that is we have a Brewing Belief discussion group tomorrow night, uh, which is just a very casual gathering at a local pub where you can just fire away at me uh, all the questions that you have about faith, God, objections, uh, questions about Christianity, questions about anything, and really just a resource that we want to uh, supply you with for you to process the different things that you have on your mind and on your heart. It's at Meridian Pint, 7.30 tomorrow night, so please do uh, come out, uh, bring a neighbor or friend who's also in a similar kind of thinking process um, or inquiring process and would love to have them uh, join you as well. All right? Sort of in a different or similar vein, uh, after the sermon, we're going to have a little time of Q&A. So you can jot down questions that you have that come up from what I share uh, or maybe just other questions you have on your mind. So right after this, uh, some time for questions. Uh, so be ready for that. Let me say a word of prayer and we will proceed. Thank you, God, again for this time. 
thank you, Father, for these words, which we wouldn't come up with on our own. We wouldn't say the things that Jesus says, uh, but like a loving Savior, uh, you tell us what we need to hear, not just what we want to hear. We pray, God, for um, your Holy Spirit, that our hearts and minds would be able to receive what you want us to hear and understand about who you are and who we are and how you love us. So communicate to us in a way that only you can. We need your help. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this is the final sermon in this mini-series that we've been moving through in the past couple weeks on common objections to the Christian faith that many of us have, many of you may have, barriers to belief. We've been calling this too hard to believe. And there are many, many other issues that we could have tackled than the ones that we did tackle, but which we won't have the time or the space to tackle since we're finishing up this way. We could have continued talking about the way that science and reason appear to undermine faith, or the way the corruption of the Christian church, both past and present, seem to be a reason for you to step away or step back. Or maybe it's the hypocrisy of Christians that serve as a barrier to you stepping all the way in. Or maybe it's the seemingly narrow, repressive, you might say, morally backwards teaching of the Bible. Maybe that's what's got you hanging around, dancing around on the outside. Or maybe forget the details of the Christian faith. How about the existence of God itself? There's so much more that we could have talked about. In fact, that we want to talk about. The main point of this miniseries was not to answer every question exhaustively or to deal with every last issue, but to start a conversation with you, to try to persuade you that we are committed to being a community that is on journey together through questions like this. And that this is meant to be, or at least we're growing into being, a safe place where you can work through these things, where you can think wild thoughts and, and, and say them out loud and have people walk alongside you, not think you're crazy, and patiently grow together. That's what the goal is. And so for the last time here in this mini-series, this is what we're going to talk about today. This common classic objection barrier, there's just too much fire and brimstone in the Christian faith. Too much wrath and judgment. I prefer, maybe you say to yourself often, I prefer a much more tolerant, accepting, peaceful religion. What is the, what's the deal with the idea of a God that's supposedly loving and yet sends people to hell? Just seems so judgmental, so bloodthirsty, so primitive, so violent, so unforgiving. Ever thought that before? Ever heard that before? Let's talk about it. We're going to use a passage here, touching on different components of it, not going through it exhaustively either. But touching on some of the words of Jesus, we want to interact with what I think are four common responses 
that you hear or have common responses to the idea of hell and the judgment of God. First, that it's manipulative. Second, that it's hateful. Third, that it's mythical. And fourth, that it's just unfair. Manipulative, hateful, mythical, unfair. First, this objection that it's just manipulative to even talk about hell in this such a way to bring about the judgment of God in a way where we're twisting people's arms and we're trying to scare them into some fantastical belief in God. Maybe when you heard that we were talking about hell today, maybe you started scanning the room for the nearest exit, right? It's not the sort of thing that you want to talk about or hear about today, not what you bargained for. Don't worry. My goal is not to scare you today into believing in Jesus. And this is why. It is true that a lot of churches and a lot of religious communities just preach fire and brimstone and do use the idea of the judgment of God as a tactic for manipulating people into some sort of belief in God. Some sort of, hey, I better do this or I better believe in these things or I better get close to God, otherwise I'm really in trouble. But Jesus models a different sort of way of dealing with this issue. You see, Jesus has this reputation of being this fine prophet or teacher of peace and of love. What a lot of people don't know is that he spoke about hell more than any other Bible character or author in the entire Bible. The passage that we're looking at today is one such instance where Jesus talks very frankly about this idea of hell. But you don't hear Jesus simply walking around and just blasting people saying, you're all going to hell, you're all going to hell, and trying to terrify them into a relationship with him. In fact, it is a curious sort of thing that Jesus brings up this topic of God's judgment in the context of his teaching on community. That's what this whole chapter of Matthew 18 is all about. Here, he's warning us about the sort of junk that lies within our hearts, like the pride of looking down on someone else that you might consider as being inferior to you. The junk and the sin in our lives, which can hurt us, which can hurt others, and which can undermine genuine, authentic community. It's in the context of this that Jesus brings up this idea of hell. He's not just whipping it out and saying, hey, let's talk about my favorite topic again. Here, hell. You know, let's talk about judgment. Let's talk about the angry sides of God. It's in the context of uh, community. But this is what is going on here. The fact of the matter is you cannot scare a person into Christian salvation. You might be able to in other faith systems, but you cannot terrify a person into Christian belief. Why? Because, first of all, according to the Bible, genuine gospel faith arises out of a heart of love. A heart of love for God. And it's simply impossible, in fact, to love someone that you're utterly terrified of. 
It is absolutely contrary to the project of wooing people into love of God as salvation to simply try to scare them all the time and think you've done your job. Related to to that, secondly, if fear is my only motivation, if the only thing that's driving my pursuit of God, my inquiry into this idea of salvation, well, the nature of fear is self-preservation. I'm scared, and so I want to make sure I'm okay. The Bible tells us that the deepest problem of the human soul is that we are addicted to ourselves. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a few minutes, but this is how the Bible describes sin. And so if all you're presenting to people are fear motivations and manipulation and guilt, and you're trying to scare people out of self-preserving motives, turning them inwards to being more and more all about themselves, do you see by using fear, you've only deepened my commitment to me. And in doing so, You've increased my project of self-centeredness and you have just made the problem worse. Far from bringing me closer to a picture of Christian salvation, you've actually made me more culpable and guilty of the very thing that disqualifies me from it. And so fear can't be the only thing we're after. And it's why it just isn't helpful to simply pound the fire and brimstone thing and why you don't see Jesus doing that either. Sometimes, yes, like in a passage like this, Jesus will use a little bit of fear, but not as the primary motivation, but kind of like smelling salts, wakes you up, catches your attention, and calls you back to life. Fear cannot give life. Smelling salts cannot give life. It can only awaken you to the life that you already have. And this is what Jesus is doing here. And this is why in one thought going right to the next thought, he can go from talking about hell immediately to talking about the passionate pursuing love of God the Father like a shepherd going after those who are lost. It's not a contradiction in Jesus' mind because everything that he's communicating here is done out of love. Which brings us to the second point. The second issue and objection that we often have is that the idea of hell and the judgment of God is just simply hateful. Hateful. It's horrible. It's hateful. If God were really a God of love, well, there would be no judgment at all, right? These two things are absolutely incompatible, it would seem. It would seem that it would be contradictory for Jesus to talk about the care of his followers, even calling in verse 10 his followers these little ones, this tenderness that he has in this passage. And yet, Jesus does not seem to think that it's hateful or contradictory at all, and this is why. Have you, dear friends, ever gotten angry because someone else is being harmed? 
Has anger ever been a result or consequence of your deep, passionate love for someone or something around you? I think yes. It's an instinct that we all have. Somebody that you see is destroying themselves with substance abuse or with poor choices or someone that was physically harmed. Just thinking this last week about different situations in our own community where people have been mugged, assaulted, really victims of violence here in the city. And the way in which first your first reaction is to want to make sure they're okay, and the second reaction is just anger that this would happen to them. And friends, that's a right response. Why? Because sometimes love, if it's true love, gets angry. One of the most helpful examples I know about, I've shared it here before, and just to repeat it again, was articulated by a professor scholar by the name of Miroslav Volf. He's a professor at Yale University. He is Croatian and, and was in the former Yugoslavia during the time of the war going back and forth. And in his writings, he explains that he used to resist this idea of the wrath of God, that everything changed through his personal experience of war. Where in his hometown, his home villages, his people were victims of terrible atrocities, terrible injustice, terrible loss of life, where over 200,000 people were killed, 3 million people displaced. And this is what he writes in the face of this kind of injustice, this kind of evil. How does he respond and how does he believe that God responds? My villages and cities were destroyed, he says. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, listen to this, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God, he concludes, isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Because he has such a passionate commitment to the well-being of the people that he has made and the world that he has made. Because he has a passion for justice and wholeness, God's wrath flows from his love. And just like you would think it strange, if not terrible, for someone who claims to love one person, even yourself, and who at the sight of violence committed against you stood there with indifference or tolerance, 
you would say, that's not love, that's hatred. You're not loving me. You don't care that I'm being ravaged by evil. And the same thing goes with God. God cares for humanity and the wounds of our world. He must respond. Do we really want a God who looks out on the atrocities of the world, on the evil that is committed day in and day out in our own neighborhood and even in our own lives? Do we really want a God who looks at that and says, eh, don't worry about it. It's all going to be okay. Eh, not a big deal. Or do we want a God who says, I hate evil. I hate injustice. And I will do anything that it takes, even at the cost of my own son. Me through him subjecting myself to evil and injustice out of love for you. That you might be made whole. That you might be redeemed and healed. That evil might be conquered. That all things might be right. Don't we want a God who would say, I don't tolerate these things. I do burn in wrath. And Wolf continues on to say, and if I desire that God to be that way against evil everywhere, which we're nodding our heads and saying yes, then I cannot selectively say I don't want him to be the same God towards the evil that is in here. A God of justice is a God of love. And though it's a hard thing to get our minds around, the Bible tells us that hell is the expression of God's hatred for evil and his love for people who are terrorized by it. Third objection or third issue, third response that people often have towards this idea of hell, and that is that it's mythical. It's mythical. Hell isn't even real, right? Uh, And I think part of the reason why we often feel this way is because of the way our normal American culture tends to depict hell in sort of cartoonish fashion, Uh, right? I mean, the way that you just get used to Uh, This mythical quality in the way that people talk about and think about hell, sort of this very hot place, right, with little guys in red tights running around with forked tails and pitchforks and uh, that sort of thing, being a nuisance but not otherwise really being a real threat to us. I I think it helps us to understand that when the Bible... It's generally the true in the Bible. Anytime the Bible is trying to describe for us something that is really, really hard to describe or something that's just pressing onto the outer limits of our imaginations, it starts to grab images and colorful pictures and metaphors to try to describe in sensory fashion what it's trying to present to us. And so there are a lot of colorful metaphors and word pictures that Jesus uses to describe hell to us. 
Hell is sometimes described as a prison or a dungeon. Does that literally mean that you go to a place with bars in front of it? No. It's a real place, we're told. Not just a state of mind, but it's a place of permanence. You don't just kind of go and come. But that's the prison idea, a place of permanence. At other times, hell is described as an outer darkness, uh, a, a place where the light of God's goodness is turned off, terrifyingly so, where we're uh, totally and forever banished from the favor and the presence of God. The lights go out. And so if you can imagine, it's, it's the absence of the perfect goodness and the blessing and the favor of God that every single person enjoys every moment of our lives, whether or not we actually acknowledge him. Because the Bible would say even the warmth in the air comes from the presence of God and the sunshine that shines upon us and the joy that we experience in our hearts and the breath that we breathe and the smiles and laughter that we share and the encouragement that we have in relationship and the meaningfulness of putting our hands to our work and the dignity that we have as human beings, all these wonderful things and blessings which are so easy to take for granted, every one of them, we're told, comes from God himself His presence, His blessing, hell is a place where all of that is turned off and taken out. And all that's left is the justice and the wrath of God. Hell is also described as being a place full of maggots. You're like, that's weird. Uh, What's going on with maggots? Well, uh, a place where the worm never dies, we're told in the book of Mark. Never dies, never runs out of food. There's always something to eat. In other words, it's described as a place of endless spiritual decomposition where horrifically uh, people endlessly fall apart and yet it never ends. So physically, uh, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, uh, we, we come apart at the seams. We disintegrate because after all, the Bible tells us that what holds us together, which binds us together as people, what makes us whole in the image of God is God himself. So it stands to reason if you're cast out into the outer darkness, if the presence and the blessing of God and the favor of God is withdrawn from you, then you start to literally disintegrate, and yet it never ends. In verse 9, we have the word hell used specifically. Literally, in the original language, it's Gehenna which the English translations describe as hell. Gehenna, according to historians, Gehenna was a real place that all of Jesus' listeners would have known. He would have known what he was talking about as soon as he said the word. It was a valley right outside of the city of Jerusalem. It was a valley that actually served as the city's garbage dump. And so, it smelled terrible, And it burned continuously, and it was just about the worst place imaginable. You see, Jesus is grabbing, and the Jewish traditions of his day are grabbing this one location, and they're not literally saying that that is where you go as punishment for God in his justice 
for our sin, but rather he's giving something vibrant and vivid in our imaginations to say it's sort of like this. We see this language of eternal fire a couple times here in this passage. And likely it's not meant that it's literal fire. We know that because hell can't be in outer darkness and have fire at the same time, right? That wouldn't really work out. But rather, this is an image to describe the pain of this judgment, right? And as we've described it so far, you would understand the pain that is involved in such a place. It's a real place, not just an idea or state of mind, a place of unimaginable pain and misery that's experienced physically, spiritually, emotionally, on every level as a consequence for our resistance to God. And this brings us to the fourth point and the final point. Let's talk about it after that. And that's this common objection that the idea of hell is just simply unfair. It's just unfair that God would send anyone there. And even the language of sending people to hell, hell is unfair. It's arbitrary, we often feel. But the Bible describes it really differently. And if we just understood how the Bible thinks through the nature of hell, we would be able to say it all makes too much sense, terribly so. And this is what I mean. The Bible tells us that every one of us are moral screw-ups, that we are what it calls sinners. Why? Just because you break arbitrary rules that God kind of makes up? Well, no. No. Earlier in the book of Matthew, the same book, Jesus was asked what the moral law of God is all about. Jesus, when it comes down to it, what are these rules all about? And he gives a most surprising answer. He says, all these rules, all these do's and don'ts, yes, they're real, but at the heart of it, they're all about love. Loving God and loving other people. Turning your attention away from yourself and fixing your eyes and your heart and your mind upon the good of others. First and foremost, God and also other people. Sin, therefore, is not simply breaking moral rules. Sin, as the Bible describes it, is loving yourself and refusing to love other people, most especially God. In other words, underneath every sin is a heart that says, it's all about me, leave me alone. Don't tell me what to do, leave me alone. Don't tell me how I ought to live, leave me alone. Don't tell me I ought to love and sacrifice for another person, leave me alone. Don't tell me that your time is my time. Leave me alone. Don't tell me how I ought to use my body or my money. Leave me alone. I am my own God. I make the rules. I'll live however I want with no obligations to anyone. Leave me alone. And if you just think about our lives, because maybe some of us are just too convinced that we're all right and we're doing all right. Can you scan through your life and consider all the different ways in which that quiet cry really does resonate through so much of your motivations in life? How you interact with your roommates or your family members, the people on your block, how you talk to or don't talk to your coworkers or your boss, 
how you feel about the person that cuts you off, whether in the car or in line at the metro station, how you deal with people that wrong you. All these ways in which we say, I'm the boss of me. No one tells me what to do. Leave me alone. Both you and God, leave me alone. And here's the logic of the Bible, friends. The Bible tells us that in the afterlife, people always get and only get what they have most wanted all their lives. Whether, if that's to have God as their God and Savior, or if that's to have themselves as their own God and Savior. In other words, if a person spends their whole life telling God, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone, just leave me alone, There does come a day when God finally gives you what you're asking for, finally relents and says, okay, my desire has been to refuse your demand in love and in mercy and compassion to not let you have it your way, but okay, and now I'll leave and withdraw myself from your life terribly, terrifyingly, tragically, in a place and an experience called hell. You see, J.I. Packer, theologian, in a wonderful little, simple way, helpful way, describes in one of his books, Hell in This Way. Dr. Packer says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever worshiping Him, or without God forever worshiping themselves. You see, the way that the Bible actually talks about hell is that it is all too fair. Stunningly, gut-wrenchingly fair. And is why, according to biblical understanding, you can say that no one goes to hell who doesn't willfully choose to go there and stay there. Because you always get what you were most asking for all your lives. God gives it to you. But here's another thing that God gives. The shocking story of the Christian gospel is that he himself would be willing to take the hell that you and I deserve. In fact, the hell that you and I have spent our whole lives asking for. The leave-me-alone spirit that infects every person and every heart and every life And in every way. And that merits for us this very outer darkness experience. This worm devouring with no end every part of us. The falling apart of our humanity in justice. All of this that we deserve. That God in his love actually lets his wrath fall upon himself 
in our place. This, friends, is the story of Jesus. What was it that was going on on the cross? The first century? This terrible Roman execution which was famous in ancient times for the excruciating torture that its victims underwent. And yet, can you fathom that that wasn't even the worst of the pain that Jesus actually suffered? The worst of it all was the suffering of his soul. Jesus bearing the infinite wrath of God for all our sins and moral failings on the cross. Jesus was thrown into the fire of hell. We said earlier that hell is utter estrangement from God. God withdrawing his presence, his favor, his blessing from us. And what do we hear from Jesus on the cross? The one thing that made him cry out in dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Betrayal and abandonment from his disciples, his closest friends. Everyone ran from him, leaving him alone was torture, relational torture itself. But the deepest loss of all, loss of all, was Jesus' loss of the Father. Physical torture and death was bad, nightmarish, but worse than the physical torture was the pain inflicted upon his soul. Jesus, the Son of God, in the place of all who would embrace him, who would receive this gift of love, Jesus suffered the furnace of divine banishment, of cosmic exile. He went to the dungeon. He went into the outer darkness. He experienced the eternal fire, the maggots, and not for himself, but for us, for the sum total of all our hells put together, compressed upon his soul in three hours, hanging there in on the cross. This is the good news of love for you and me. For us, hell is the freely chosen result of our sin. For Jesus, hell was the freely chosen result of his love. You see, when you understand what the Bible says about hell, ironically, surprisingly, what emerges actually is a powerful story of divine love. If you start to get what the Bible says about hell and what God did about hell and what Jesus suffered in hell on the cross, you start to get what the Bible says about the grace and the compassion and the love of God for leave me alone sinners like you and me. This is the good news. And this is what makes not the picture of hell easy to embrace, but it at least fits it in the context of the gift of salvation that's offered to every single one of us, even today. 
Would you embrace it? Would you embrace Him? Would you consider this? Let's pray. God, thank you for um, the chance to talk about this uh, topic. Um, And we pray that you would continue to help us to think through uh, the reality of judgment and justice, but the way in which you took it upon yourself in the place of all who would embrace you and love you. What a gift. Um, We pray that we would either uh, re-receive you in a fresh, new, and powerful way today, or maybe receive you for the first time today. That you would give us the will and the joy to take that step. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's ponder this some more. Stand up and uh, we'll sing a song.